Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. Without any training whatsoever, you know in this moment, am I actually listening or not? And the same simultaneous equations going on for me looking at you is it's this subconscious detector ability because we want to know is this person going to kill me or is this person a friend and listening is one of the cues we use to do that. Hey, it's Adam Murray here and this is Subtle Disruptors. This week it gets a little bit meta. I'm interviewing an expert on deep listening. It was always going to be the case that there would be long periods of silence in this interview. But that did not happen. We took it in turns to listen to each other, and I learned a lot. I noticed during this interview that I was quite nervous. I guess as an interviewer, I need to be a good listener, and it was a little bit intimidating listening to someone who is an expert in this area. And I think my biggest takeaway from this was the importance of vulnerability in listening and in sharing, although that's not something we talked about specifically. But before we start, a quick request. I'm contemplating Patreon as a way to cover costs for the podcast, and I wanted to get your feedback on that, whether you feel strongly about that one way or the other. I tried ads and they never felt right to me, and I was wondering if Patreon might work. Uh, If you could send me an email to adam at subtledisruptors.com if you feel strongly either way. If you don't, then yeah, no need to hear from you. All right, let's listen to this week's guest. His name is Oscar Trimboli. And he's speaking to us on the subtle disruption of deep listening. Oscar, it's great to be sitting here chatting with you. Do you mind explaining where we are and why you've chosen this place for our conversation? We're at 401 Collins Street in Melbourne. And it's an opportunity for me to meet and speak with you face to face. And I think it probably adds to the listening environment if you can see people as well as hear them. Mm. And I am here because I love your work and the kind of ripples you're creating Mm. by amplifying the voices of people who zig rather than zag in modern society. Ah, Thank you. Yeah. It's an honour for me to be speaking with you and listening to you. We're talking about listening today. I first heard you speak at a Jason Fox event. Yeah, um, Percolate. Percolate, that's right. Yeah. And a lot of what you said resonated with me. I still remember it. Uh, one of the things was the correlation between depth of breathing and ability to listen. Mm. Yeah. So the deeper you breathe, the deeper you listen. Yeah. And also when you're in productive dialogue, the breathing tends to become reciprocal, meaning the breathing patterns tend to match. So if you're speaking really quickly and they're speaking really quickly, your breathing will automatically be shortened. And that doesn't mean the conversation is more or less productive because you're speaking faster or slower. But in 1993 in Ottawa, the research I'm referencing has since been done in a couple of other locations in Germany a decade later and in the US only two years ago. The depth of 
breathing is just the simple mechanics of getting oxygen to your brain. So listening deeply, not something we're taught. Mm. And as a consequence, it takes a lot of cognitive load for us to listen for extended periods of time. I've researched 1,462 people (laughs) and asked them what they struggle with when it comes to listening. And focus and distraction kind of seem like the yin and yang of each other. People would love to be more focused. People get frustrated with distraction. And the difference between good listeners and great listeners is Great listeners know they're going to be distracted. Mm. They just have techniques to deal with it. Mm. So it's simply that as you're walking to a meeting or just before you pick up the phone, just take a breath where you hold it for five seconds longer on the inward breath and still hold it five more seconds before you take the outward breath and you'll be surprised. As you mentioned, when I talk in these audiences in large Venues. One of the interesting things that comes up consistently is people will come to me off stage after I finish speaking and they'll go, I didn't believe your breathing thing, but I figured I'm not going anywhere, so I'll try it. And I noticed amazing things. I noticed the sound of the air conditioning ducts in the building. I noticed the phone from somebody sitting in front of me was actually vibrating. I wouldn't have heard that before. Mm. But I also noticed how distracted I was. And yet your simple technique of just being comfortable with breathing one, two, three, four, five, and then one, two, three, four, five as you hold it out. So I'm not advocating people get into a yoga pose. I'm all about integration. So one of the things I do very intentionally is when I'm walking into a client building, as an example, from the minute I cross the line at the lobby to the time I get to the elevator, my moment to think about my breathing mm. and the minute I get in the elevator stay focused on that breathing and then I've given my intention over to the client for the rest of the time so it makes it simple so the deeper you breathe the deeper you listen yeah one of the things I was thinking about on the way here was the and it's a question for you in regard to breathing and meetings in particular If you're running late for a meeting, will you hurry to get there or would you rather keep that sense of presence and breathing and get there a little bit late so that you're more present in the meeting? Which of those two would you go with? There's a fascinating orientation in the question. So my perspective is you arrive when you're meant to. Mm. Witness is never late. Maybe, but as somebody who spends their life very much, you know, my next meeting is always a client meeting. Um, Occasionally my meeting is an administration meeting with somebody about tax or something riveting like that. It's it's rare for me to be late, and I think I've been taught that by my wife who had German parents. So their relationship to time is very different. But if you think about In Australia specifically, the Indigenous communities, their relationship to time is completely different to the Western orientation of time. Yeah, right. If you go to India, the orientation around time is very different again. So I'm a subscriber to the theory that whoever's in the room in the moment are the right people and they're going to have the right kind of conversation. So 
Have I run late? Yeah, for sure. Um, I typically will text ahead and always play this game. If I, if I think I'm going to be 10 minutes late, I'll say I'll be 15 minutes late. And then they go, oh, you're early. You know? <laughs> so straight away, okay. this orientation around time, we need to be conscious of is it serving us or is it not? Mm. In the systems I operate in, which are kind of multinational systems and organisations that are thousands of employees, there is this default behaviour that's the half an hour or one hour meeting. They're literally behind each other, or they call it back-to-back. Yeah. So you can't help but be late mm. because if you finish a meeting at 11 and your next meeting's at 11, you're late. Yeah. Or you can pass by, grab a cup of tea, spend a moment with your thoughts and go, what's my intention for that? Yeah. So I'm not one to rush. Mm. Yeah, I get that sense. (laughs) (laughs) I think because you've got to bring your whole presence to any kind of conversation. And in, in rushing, I think you're giving your power away to some abstract construction called time. And again, with the Aborigines, the right time is the right time. Yeah. The right season is the right season, and who's here now is the right people now. And reality, most people are waiting for the most senior person in the room anyway. Yeah. Might say something about the systems that I'm part of. So, yeah, I'm not going to be one who's kind of looking at my watch if I'm running late going, better hurry up. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. It is a battle that I sometimes encounter, but I do, if I reflect upon it, I'm always at the, the time I need to be there. Yeah. And the battle, the story that I have about that is I, was, I did a singing performance once and I remember we did a rehearsal the night before and the teacher said, if you're running late, just accept it and breathe and show up when you show up because I want you to be here fully engaged and fully present and not stress that you're running late. Mm. And I, I always remember that story when I am in those moments of that voice in my head saying, you're going to be late and then people are going to say that you're not punctual and you're disorganised and, you know, that's the voice in my head. And, yeah, I remember that and, and try to bring that presence and that ability to listen. Mm. Yeah. Because think about the opposite. If you turn up on time because you're rushed... You're still late to the meeting because your yeah. presence doesn't Straight. arrive yeah. till five minutes in. Yeah, spot on. And again, uh, Indigenous communities say walk at a pace where your shadow can keep up. Yeah. It's the same for us. And I, and I think the meeting will sense that you're coming to the meeting rushed and hurried even if they're not verbal about it or conscious of it, mm. they'll still get that feeling. And more importantly, so will you. Yeah. So, yeah, just be a little less judgmental on yourself, buddy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious about how the relevance of deep listening arrived for you. You said earlier that it's not something we're taught. 
And you mm. also referenced Indigenous Australian cultures quite a bit as well. And I'm wondering if there's a bit of a crossover there. But can you explain how this has been a growing awareness for you? Yeah. So I think there's two kinds of stories. One is the lightning bolt that hits you when the idea happens in a cataclysmic moment and that changes your life forever. Yeah. And for me, it's the other story where I run lots of marathons. And for me, this is just mm. something that's happened over decades that I've noticed in the last five years and other people have pointed out to me in the last five years the long story short somebody simply said to me can you teach me what you're doing right now because I find that incredibly powerful and I said what am I doing Matt you're listening to my soul like you're going beyond the words you're going to a place in me that's deep anyway so If I go back to my schooling days, I'm the son of two first-generation migrants from Italy. And at our school, there were 23 nationalities. I was born here. I grew up in a suburb that was the place where migrants arrived in our part of Sydney, right near the Villawood Detention Centre. So we had people from uh, Laos, Cambodia, Thailand, but we also had people from Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, fleeing military juntas over there, and also people from Eastern Europe. We had people at our school from Poland, from Lithuania, from Yugoslavia, as it was then, as well as people like me, first-generation migrants from Italy, from Greece, from um, Cyprus, and... What I learned looking back was I was a connector between the students and the teachers. I was a connector between the sporty people and the academics. I was a connector between the migrants and the Australian-born people. And in high school, we used to play card games a lot. But the kind of card games we used to play were like Italian card games called briscola. And the card format's not too dissimilar to classic English cards. But we also played cards with the Chinese kids. And so you had to play this game in a different way because you're paired, you're diagonally across from each other as teams. So people wanted me on their team and, I, and I'm atrocious. I can't count cards for a start. I'm discalculous. My relationship with numbers is abysmal. Discalculus means that you transpose the numbers so if you say to me one, two, three, four, and I write it down, there's a very high likelihood I'll write down one, three, two, four. Yeah. So caller ID was awesome for me because I could just press redial on the phone. <laughs> and teachers used me as a bridge. The sporty people used me as a bridge. And I didn't kind of fully realise it till much later. Then in the workplace, I was uh, renowned for always having my team meetings at the contact centre. So I like I work for Vodafone and Microsoft and, and large organisations and your connection with the customer is usually a um, four-foot printout of PowerPoints with words on them called verbatims, what did the customer actually say in a very summarised form, but rarely did you hear what the customer said, how the customer said it. So I would make a point that our monthly team meetings would go and visit the customer contact centre before we come into the meeting and listen to the customers and I briefed my advertising agencies I was in marketing roles typically with them listening to the customer and again it's just another little breadcrumb on the trail of listening for me yeah and then I was standing at a graduate recruitment fair for Microsoft and everybody was 
going past us. Kids were going to the consulting companies, Ernst & Young and Deloitte and people like that, and they were going to the banks. And I was getting a bit frustrated. I love next generation leaders. That's why I went and spent time on the stand. And I decided to cold call some people and literally step out of my self-imposed little area and ask people, you know, hey, I'm from Microsoft. What questions have you got for me? And they'd all say, I don't want to be a developer and walk away. So I realized I had to change my approach. And what I realized was they didn't know we hired at Microsoft. Uh, legal people, finance people, human resources people, marketing people, sales people, operations people, customer care people, they all thought it was about software development. Yeah. So I went to my CEO, Tracy Fellows at the time and said, you know, our graduate thing is broken and I'm going to come with you for a proposal about how we fix this. And what I decided to do was listen to every graduate who was at Microsoft, but more importantly, every graduate who left Microsoft, and there were quite a few who would peel off after their first year. They'd either go to a competitor or go to a different industry. Mm. And then I also did something was considered brave. I didn't think it was. I decided to speak to all the people who we offered jobs to but turned them down in the graduate program from the previous two years. And you would imagine the themes were very similar. They felt like they were given narrow tasks They didn't have a perspective of what this was connecting to a bigger picture. And so I recruited the current graduates and said, I'm going to work with you guys to present to our leadership team, but you guys are going to present, not me. Mm. And in that became the genesis of what became known as Microsoft Protégé. So think of America's Got Talent, but for university students in their second year at university. And in the first year, we ran a pilot in Sydney. The second year, we ran it on the east coast of Australia, Melbourne, Canberra, and Sydney, and Gold Coast and Brisbane. And again, that got taken to 26 subsidiaries around the world because the winning team got to implement their own idea and they were given a case study of a real Microsoft problem, literally something that we were trying to crack in the market. And the winning team would come in and implement the idea. But what it gave us was an amazing opportunity to look at great talent very early. And each member of the graduate team would have lunch with the people we'd picked out once a month. And all of a sudden, we went from no first-time offers for graduates to every first-time offer was being accepted. But more importantly, those people have now all stayed with Microsoft. They've gone on to global roles, regional roles. They're working in Europe, the UK. They're working in North America. They're working in China. And all because we took the time to listen to what they wanted and they just wanted to do something more than effectively photocopying, (laughs) you know? Yeah. So as I look back, all these little breadcrumbs of listening come about. And in that conversation with Matt, He said, you can change the world if you teach people how to listen. I went, okay. And at the time, I was working with a mentor called Dermot, and he says, so what are you going to do with that? And I said, well, I'm going to think about it for a week and come back. And a week later, I came back, and I said to Dermot, between now and 2030, I'm going to create a ripple effect so 10 million people in the world become deep listeners. 
And he says, I sense you feel you can achieve that pretty easily. You can see it, can't you? I said, yeah. He says, then it's not a goal worthy of you. How does 100 million sound? I said, well, it sounds like you've just scared me. My blood's drained from my face. (laughs) I'm really sweaty. He goes, then that's the goal you should be going for. And it's only 2% of the world. So it's quite frustrating for me because I keep saying we spend 55% of our day listening, yet only 2% of us have ever been trained in how to listen. So even if I train 100 million listeners in the world, I'll only have cracked 2% of the Earth's population. Yeah. And yet amazing things happen where I get random emails from people in Canada and the Netherlands and Germany and Ireland and Singapore and New Zealand saying, you know, they've listened to a podcast or they've read a book or they've seen my model used in someone else's presentation and elegantly attributing me to the idea and seeing it applied in prisons, seeing it applied when um, healthcare professionals are dealing with people with autism and not the people with autism but training people to listen effectively to them rather than labelling them and listening to people who've used it in the workplace but also hearing it used where people have taken it and then added their bit on. So one of the things I've discovered is this isn't my idea. It's just come through me. Mm. And it's my job just to amplify the idea rather than it being my idea. So that's been the fun part of doing this where you get all sorts of people reaching out to you and somebody's asked me to work with them on creating a documentary now around the cost of not listening. Mm. And that scares me too. And um, I've built a jigsaw puzzle. I've um, got a set of playing cards that I've developed. And longer term, my hope is that we can create technology that can assist humans like artificial intelligence. So imagine Alexa is in every team meeting in the world and listening and then coaching people after the meeting and saying to them, hey, Adam, you asked a lot of why questions, but some how and what questions halfway through the meeting might have been more effective. Mm. And that's why I can easily see it's not going to be hard to get to 100 million listeners. Yeah, okay. The, you know, with my technology background, I've been given great insight into how to scale ideas. Yeah. Uh, it's just hard work in between <laughs> to get there. Yeah. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. Yeah, it does. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I do want to drill a little bit into the model mm. at some point, but before I do, I've got a couple of questions about maybe your thoughts on um, were we listeners and now we're not listeners mm. as a maybe as a race, yeah, as a the human race. Maybe that's a little bit too generic. Well, yeah, let's start with that. Like, is this something that we've lost? Is it been a lost art? Uh, so at 25 weeks, a human embryo can distinguish its mother's voice from any other sound outside it. That fluid that we all sit in when we're being created. And at 32 weeks, we can distinguish Bon Jovi from Beethoven. Yeah. 
So listening is a birthright. Listening actually sustains us. It's really important we know who our mother is when we're born. So we know where the food is that's going to sustain us. And yet the second we are born, the act of birth is us screaming in the world to be noticed. And for many people, they spend the rest of their life trying to be noticed by speaking, by screaming. So it's not a lost arm. It's in our modern world, there are a lot more distractions. You only have to go back to 1950 and the way you received information was from a newspaper, a TV and a radio, and you typically only had a choice of three. Three radio stations, three TV stations, three newspapers. But now we've gone from a world of threes to a world of I can get any information from anywhere in the world. And for most of us, we have little red dots on our phone that rule our lives. And that kind of level of distraction doesn't help us be present in the moment to listen. One of my most significant challenges in this journey is to get listening embedded into curriculum for teachers. So when teachers study how to teach, there is no componentry in there that teaches kids how to listen. Yet kids learn to listen from their teachers through their role modelling. And kids learn how to listen through role modelling through their parents. So there's a really strong correlation. If your parents are great listeners, you will be because you see what the behaviour looks like and the opposite is true as well. Mm. But if your parents are great listeners and your teachers are not, it literally cancels itself out. So we have maths teachers that we all remember at school. You especially probably remembered a maths teacher. We have English teachers at school that we remember, but not one of us can name our listening teacher. Mm. Yet the teacher we remember the most is the one we think listened to us the most. Yeah, wow. Trying to think who that is for me. Yeah. Interesting. So for those of you who couldn't watch Adam, he kind of just had a moment. (laughs) Just tell me what happened for you then. I was thinking about, I didn't think about my maths teachers because they were quite significant for me. And then I thought about, I actually thought about post-school as well, my teacher's post-school. And for me, the person that came to mind is someone who was a teacher for me, a therapist for me in my 30s. And I think he's the person mm. that taught me how to listen. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So for all of us, it's innate. For all of us, we know when somebody's not listening to us. So we need no training for that. Mm. That's why I know it's innate. Without any training whatsoever, you know in this moment, am I actually listening or not? Yeah. And the same simultaneous equations going on for me looking at you is it's this subconscious detector ability because we want to know, is this person going to kill me or is this person a friend? And listening is one of the cues we use to do that. 
So for me, it's about raising everybody's consciousness to know what's the division, the multiplication, the subtraction, and the addition of listening because we automatically know that's the syntax for maths. What's that for listening? Yeah. That's the five levels of listening. And for me, if you don't know how to paint, you are given paintbrushes, colours, and numbers, and you paint by numbers. None of us know what that canvas looks like when it comes to listening. We know when it's present. We see a spectacular work of art. Gee, that person really listened to me. And the opposite is true. Gee, that person didn't listen to me at all. There was a clash of colours. And we all see in colour. But most of us listen in black and white. We listen in this monochrome, two-dimensional language of seeing and hearing because we can't have a language set to talk about what does good listening look like. Yeah. So I have a strong belief, not evidence, that it is innate. It is our birthright. As you mentioned earlier on, the... Indigenous peoples of Australia talk about dadiri, which is three-dimensional listening. It means listen to yourself, listen to your lands, and listen to the people who inhabit the land, so the tribe or the mob that I'm part of. Mm. But if you go into the ancients who are Chinese, if you go into the ancients, the Inuit of North America, if you go into the ancients that are the Incas of Central and South America, if you go into early communities in India and in Arabian peninsulas, if you go and look at Hebrew texts, there is a much stronger emphasis on listening, pausing, silence, and the role of wisdom that the elders give us. So I think one of the reasons why we struggle with it is we've lost this connection through the three generations. In the past, three generations lived under one roof, that doesn't happen anymore. Mm. So our connection to someone wise and reflective, it's not there anymore. Mm. So we need to put those people onto YouTube and mobile phones and make them into heroes or create an app because people give up a lot of power to an algorithm or a search engine and type in, how do I listen? And they think that's the answer. So I think we've probably gone a full circle on that one, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. I can't quite remember where I heard this, but I was listening to somebody talk about how much power a listener has in being able to make the person telling a story be able to tell that story well. Yeah. Like it's like as I'm listening to you, I have so much to contribute to your ability to tell a story well. Yeah. Oh, that was fascinating. Mm, that's true. And a really skillful listener almost plays the role of a book editor. They're trying to bring the best out in the person through reflection and critique rather than it being a passive act of just hearing. Yeah. So a skillful listener needs to be conscious of two things. If you are listening you are sending a signal to the other person that you, as the listener, are willing to be changed. Mm. The opposite is true too. For the speaker to be fully engaged in the dialogue, the idea will evolve because the person listening to them 
has helped them think about it in completely different ways. With the same subject, a photographer will always take a completely different picture based on their perspective, not the subject. And the same is true for listening because as a listener, you bring your history, you bring your stories, you bring your bias, you bring preordained perspectives sometimes to the conversation. And for me, a lot of time is spent by asking people who are coming into listening in a conversation, before you even start to listen to the other person, what are you bringing to this dialogue that's productive and what's not? Mm. So for a lot of us, we're not even conscious of the fact we talk in patterns. So a pattern might be I love telling stories or a pattern might be I love talking in sequence, in data, in evidence and sequentially over time. And depending on who you're talking to, providing them with sequence helps them harness their idea and makes it something that can be done. And for other people, they find that really constraining. So one of my favourite questions I often ask people is, if we were to come back in 10 years and there was only one thing we'd change about what we're discussing now that would really make a difference for whoever's listening to us, what would that be? And most people struggle to go out a decade, yet in going out a decade as a listener, you're creating a perspective for the other person that's trying to get them out of the noise and get mm. to the essence of what this is really about. Yeah. And they'll give you code words. So if you're a great listener, what you'll hear more than you other listeners is, so what I really mean, Adam, is... What I really want to say, Adam, is what's really important to me, Adam, is when you start to hear these words, you know you've gone to a level of depth in their thinking that they haven't explored before. Mm. So I often talk about listening is like a washing machine. You start in wash cycle and the water's really sudsy and dirty and brown and then you go through a rinse cycle and then you go through a wash cycle and then go through a rinse cycle. And it's the act of verbalising that's the rinse cycle for the speaker. But if people know the 125-400 rule, which is you speak at 125 words a minute, but you can listen at up to 400 words a minute, and a speaker can think it up to 900 words a minute. So the likelihood that the first thing coming out of your mouth is what you're thinking in a really well-rounded, easy-to-communicate way, there's a one in nine chance that it won't. There's a one in nine chance that it will. So for most of us, just the simple question of how long have you been thinking about this? I'm curious what else you've thought about on this topic is more than sufficient for them to think you're an extraordinary listener. Mm. Yet we're so busy trying to get our point of view across that we never get into the rinse cycle for the other person. And if we do, boy, the conversations are really different. One of my favourite, favourite stories about this, I was facilitating a workshop two and a half years ago with a tech company and we went around the room and we did this exercise which is to explore the meaning of the company 
and I ask people what animal the company is and everybody in the room except one person said we're an eagle, we're an osprey, you know, there was some kind of amazing soaring bird that killed prey really quickly and looked really elegant when they weren't. And there was one person who hadn't spoken, it was Ellen, and they were ready to move on. It's like, where, where are the eagles? And I just looked at Ellen and there was this big long pause and she didn't want to talk. And I said, I'm curious what you're thinking right now. And she said, I thought it was obvious, but my perspective has been changed. And I said, oh, why is that? She goes, well, I thought we were snakes. Now you could hear a pin drop in the room. Imagine everybody's described it as a flying creature of great speed and elegance. And then Ellen says, we're a snake. So what's going through your mind right now? My mind? Yeah. Uh, Sly, deceptive. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what everybody else was thinking. And Ellen said the most profound thing in that moment. She said, we're a technology company. Like a snake, we shed our skin every season to become something that we need to be for our customers. It's our ability to shed our skin and become what we need to next season for our customers that keeps us relevant. And like you're doing now, you can't see this, but Adam's now nodding furiously. The rest of the room was nodding furiously and that became a soft toy that they used as a little almost like project kickoff kind of thing to throw around the room. It became part of their logo. Their product release cycles were named after different kinds of snakes, right? (laughs) And they use it in their sales pitch as well. They use the whole Mm. story, by the way, Mm. and basically saying we're willing to change our you to the customer. Yeah. And... The beauty of that story is that Ellen had the courage to speak up. We gave her the space to be noticed, but the rest of the group could have shut her down as well, and they chose not to. They chose to see what's true in that meaning for the group and then how that could be applied. And it really energised the group at that point because it became a metaphor for the whole rest of the day about Where were they in default and groupthink? And where were they that they needed to embrace their inner snake Mm. in that sense of evolving, shedding bad ideas to come into the new season? And you have to create the space where it's okay for quiet people to speak up or Ellen wasn't that quiet. She just felt a bit under threat because her idea wasn't the group idea. Mm. So for me in doing my work in organisations, a lot of the time it's noticing those people who have a perspective. Now, there are other times where you just get some crazy ideas and the group kind of goes, yeah, that might work, that might, but at least they give it the idea. But in that, that one for me... Is a really, really powerful example of listening to what's unsaid and listening for meaning. Mm. So, yeah, that's great. We don't, we don't have heaps of time left, but I have a question about how you listen, and perhaps you can weave how you teach people to listen yeah. to that as well. 
But for me, I, I kind of see there being three layers of how you listen. Mm-hmm. There's one-on-one listening, yeah. what we're doing now. There's the facilitation work that you do in a group and yeah. being able to listen to a group. Mm. And then there's the listening that you're having to do, which relates to your goal, being able to teach 100 million people how to deeply listen. Mm. I'm interested in, well, how you listen, but also what you're hearing at mm. some of those different layers as well. Yeah. yeah. So there's some really simple techniques I use. So one of them is um, if you're a customer or a client of mine and I'm working with you, I use Google Alerts to help me listen to what's happening in your world. So type in first name, last name, and their company name. Mm. And generally, no matter where their details are published on the web, it will come up as an alert with me in an email. So that's a really simple hack I teach. In fact, I was talking to somebody who was struggling with a particular part of their business two years ago, and I said, this is what I do. Francois, that was his name. And he called me up only three weeks later because in that alert, you have a context to have a conversation. So some of my clients recently have appeared before commissions of inquiry and you would know before, during or after if they've been involved and it just gives me a chance to send them a quick text, good luck tomorrow or how are you going or whatever the case might be, Mm. as opposed to some random email going, how's your day? So one of my really simple listening techniques is to use technology in my favour and use Google Alerts, and anybody can do that. What happened with Francois was he was spending all of his time trying to get new clients, and I I just said to him, who aren't you listening to using level four unsaid? He says, I guess I'm not listening to my clients. And, And he's had a lot, and it's like I think he's been in business for 25 years. I said, just play a game, pick 10 clients you really love to work with again and chuck them into Google Alerts. And straight away, within three weeks, he had a conversation and people go, oh, what are you up to? Can you come and do some work? Because they were in a new company or they have a new team or something like that. The other thing I need to be aware of as the listening expert is what am I not listening to? And generally the person I'm not listening to the most is me. So I have to spend a lot of time being conscious of the internal dialogue and getting that out of the way. So to help process that, I run um, and I swim in a charity running group called Cantu. And that's a marvellous place. You can process a lot looking at a black line in a swimming pool (laughs) for an hour and a half of training or ocean swim on a Saturday where you're swimming for one or two Ks and all you're worried about was, my goodness, what was that shadow in the water? (laughs) Was that that a fish? Was that a seal? Was that a shark? And the same with running. I always say after about five Ks, you just get into this very rhythmic place where you can process what matters and more importantly, you can process what doesn't. So I think for all people who are stepping into some kind of leadership role, they need to find a way to care for who they are, not to protect them, but to replenish them. So that's another technique I use to make sure I'm listening to myself. I've surrounded myself very deliberately with other people that play a role in either cheerleading for me or kicking my butt 
looking after me as pit crew or architecting my future. Mm. And that, that idea of having four people that matter around you has come from a piece of work that Janine Garner's done with building a network of people that matter. Mm. So I, I think her model around how to develop a network for introverts is one of the most powerful breakthrough ways for me to think about I may be chiefing a tribe, but I also need some other chiefs to help me. One of the ways, and this is the last way to talk about externalities, in my work with clients, I always ask the question, what does it mean to voters? What does it mean to shareholders? What does it mean to the community? And then this is commonly the most provocative question that people really think about differently. What does this mean to the next generation that aren't even born? So creating this externality, which creates distance from the idea, also helps to distill the idea to what absolutely matters. So whether we're talking about a climate change debate or legislation in banking, whether we're talking about the trade-off between profitability and customer satisfaction, the question always of going external to listen. It creates the most distinct and powerful perspective for people because it takes them completely out of a ping-pong match. A lot of time I'm visualising this ping-pong ball going across the table in the meetings I'm privilege to sit in and then those questions where you just go completely external so for me I fought I fought a titanic battle in my head how could I create 100 million deep listeners without technology Mm. because fiercely in my head I believe technology was one of the reasons why we have this problem yeah and then great leader of someone I look up to, Pete Cook, said to me, how do you just embrace and not all on that idea? And in that moment, I gave up trying to fight 35 years in technology and going the way to create 100 million deep listeners in the world is to embrace technology. But it's always creating an external listening perspective, which requires an enormous amount of humility and deference to go, this isn't my idea, this is an idea. And others will breathe more life into it faster if I show them the idea. If I believe it's my idea, then too much of my ego is going to slow it down. And that's the hardest thing, and yet it's the moment at which I've gone... So you saw me speak two and a half years ago. That was the very first time I spoke publicly on the idea. Yeah, wow. All that work up until that point in time had been done on one-on-one or behind closed doors. And it was six months earlier where I was like, well, Mr. Listening Dude, you're going to have to speak. And I can still to this day remind myself of the opening words from that stage. The irony is not lost on me that I'm speaking about listening. (laughs) And embracing the power of speaking is the most potent way to create a world that has got 100 million deep listeners in it. So giving up to that idea and being okay with the irony of it 
is probably where I am at now. And it'll evolve, but that's how I try and become a better listener. I guess, you know, ultimately it's like the gym instructor that's overweight. Nobody's going to work with them. And if I don't role model great listening, yeah. people aren't going to work with me. And when they come up to me off stage and all of that, I've heard people who've just spoken to me speak to their colleague as they walk away and they go, did you see the way he was looking at us? Yeah. It's like nothing else mattered. And in that moment, nothing else does. Mm. But they never experience that and that's got nothing to do with hearing. That's got to do with seeing into, into their soul through their eyes. And you can change so much in the world by just taking that extra bit of time to listen. What do you think could emerge by developing these deep listeners in the world? I don't know. But I think it's going to be really exciting and I think it's going to be really potent and I think the one thing I envisage is that the connections between humanity across these artificial borders that we call countries will evaporate mm. and will embrace migrants in the same way we embrace refugees and, more importantly, will embrace foreign ideas as if they were our own because we hear past the words, the accent, or the origin, which is what our Indigenous communities teach us. Listen to ourselves, listen to our lands and the people that inhabit that. And if we find a way to bring those three things together, what matters is the moment, not the future, not the past, but just this moment. And what happens in that moment is extraordinary. It's a beautiful way to finish. Thank you so much for your time, Oscar. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for listening. Yeah, you're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.